WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Bisphenols are common chemicals that can be found everywhere. Bisphenols can be found in water bottles. So if you're drinking a water bottle and the water is like in the sun, the bisphenols can seep into that water. There are many detrimental effects of consuming bisphenols, especially for mothers who are pregnant, because that bisphenol is then going on to the child. But to tell you more about that, Jeremy Gingrich is here with us today. Jeremy, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, thanks for having me on today. My name is Jeremy Gingrich. I'm actually a recent graduate with my PhD in pharmacology and toxicology, and I work in the lab of Almadina Vega Lopez, who's over in the animal science department. Thanks for joining us this morning, Jeremy. What are bisphenols? Are they something that's similar to BPA? And why are they important? Oh, there are at least 21 of them used. It's a a small molecule that is comprised of these two chemical rings. And the name of the bisphenol changes based off of the chemical that's in between the rings or on the outsides of the rings. And they're used as kind of a base polymer for the production of plastics. So bisphenol A specifically, that's one type of bisphenol, would be used kind of as this tandem polymer in plastics production. So you'd you'd mix a lot of BPA together, all the BPA linked together and forming this hard plastic. Thanks for the explanation, Jeremy. I've heard a lot of bad things about BPA, but why is it bad for people? BPA, it's not necessarily inherently bad for any individual to consume, especially at the levels that any particular individual is going to be consuming it. They're particularly susceptible to chemical exposures like growth and development or during pregnancy. We worry about these bisphenol chemicals, BPA specifically, because they're known as xenohormones. They function like a hormone in the body, and BPA will act like estrogen. But they're interesting chemicals because they're quite promiscuous, so it can act like estrogen, but BPA can also act like testosterone or other types of hormones. That's interesting. So BPA is mainly harmful to people that are undergoing growth and development, whether it's a person growing up as a teenager or somebody that's pregnant with their child. How is BPA like a hormone anyways, and how does that negatively affect people that are going through growth and development during their life cycle? BPA acts like a hormone because it's structurally similar to certain parts. So let's use estrogen as an example. There's areas on the BPA molecule that act like estrogen. So it can attach onto the estrogen receptor and cause kind of this estrogen signaling pathway. You might typically associate with kind of estrogen signaling. These are particularly harmful during development because if you have any hormonal imbalance or endocrine changes, so you would have alteration in the levels of estrogen or testosterone, that can be harmful to the fetus. So we've seen, for example, women who are exposed to testosterone gestationally or during pregnancy, female offspring can develop a syndrome called polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. That's pretty well established. Also, uh, changes in estrogen signaling, so that can cause obesity. That's been linked to the development of diabetes and obesity later in life. And this is linked primarily to my research, and I think the most important organ and our first organ in development, the placenta. The placenta is itself an endocrine organ. It recognizes all of these hormones. It has receptors for estrogen, testosterone. So exposure of the placenta to these chemicals can also have negative effects on the child. 
So we know that if you have changes in how the placenta develops, it can negatively result how the fetus develops as well. So you could have something like placental insufficiency. So the placenta is malformed, it's small, and then there's not enough nutrients that are able to pass from the mother through the placenta to the child. So the child will develop smaller. It can be called intrauterine growth restriction, and it makes you susceptible for the development of metabolic syndromes like diabetes and obesity later in life. Okay, Jeremy, that makes sense. To reiterate what you said is that BPA can act like a hormone and attach onto the receptors. So this can cause hormone changes, especially whenever a mother is pregnant. And it could also negatively affect the placenta. So the placenta is an organ that allows the exchange of gases and nutrients between the mother and the child. And if the placenta is being negatively affected, then that can cause so many detrimental effects on the fetus. I appreciate that background, Jeremy. But now can you tell me how do you study this? Like, what did you do with this in your research? There's actually been quite a bit of information established on BPA and how BPA can negatively affect the placenta. So what I've primarily focused on are, we call them bisphenol or emerging bisphenolic chemicals. So these are BPA replacements. So this is a chemical that you find in your BPA-free water bottle. So just because it says it's BPA-free doesn't mean there's no plastics or harmful chemicals in it. So I study these emerging bisphenol chemicals pregnancy model. Something we heard about a lot on this show is how different scientists that we've interviewed will use animal models to study the different pathologies that they're interested in. But usually these animal models are focused on either rat or mouse models. We've even heard of cows being used as an animal model. But why in particular do you use the sheep as your model for this research project? Not a lot of people know this, but most of what we know about how the placenta develops and as the human placenta, at least, and how chemicals and drugs are transported from the mother to the child, we know from studying the sheep placenta. So they make excellent animal models. For one reason, they're quite docile, so they're easy to work with. Mice are also quite easy to work with, but they have a bit of a different placental structure. And you get more similarities with the sheep placenta, actually, than you would get with uh, different rodent models. And again, they've been used in the past. They are a social species, so that means that they typically give birth to a low number of children. So like humans, we don't have more than you know triplets typically in normal pregnancy. Same thing with a sheep. Whereas with rodents, you would have a litter-bearing species. And the issue with studying chemical exposures, particularly in a rodent that you would get away from in the sheep model, is called a uterine positioning phenomenon. So that meaning that the mouse or the, the babies from the mouse that are closer to these uterine arteries are going to receive more of the chemical, more of the nutrients, more of everything than their litter mates that are up higher in the uterus. All right, Jeremy, that's logical, especially because mice and rats have so many offspring, and it's much more comparable to use a sheep. In these models, are you injecting the sheep with the bisphenol replacements, or are you incorporating in their food or something like that? It's a really important point to bring up with the animal model. So sheep and humans inherently have different digestive systems. So sheep are ruminants. They have a different type of stomach than we do. If we were to feed the chemical, they would process it much differently than we process it. And since we're exposed to these chemicals, not just orally through ingesting foods that have been contaminated with the plastic or water, but also through uh, transdermal, so touching receipt paper, the chemical will transfer over. Um, we've opted to use a subcutaneous dosing route, so that's very similar to the transdermal exposure. So we, we're injecting them, but it's just under the skin. 
It's a really good point that you bring up on how the digestive system of a sheep is completely different from a human's. And because of that, the way that we process the BPA is going to be different if it was solely just being focused on the ingestion of BPA. So that's really great that you're studying what happens when it's injected instead. However, once you've administered these injections, how do you actually know what kind of effect is taking place? Do you look at like their stool samples or are you drawing blood to see changes in the chemistry of the blood? Most of these studies are terminal. We study growth changes in the fetus, but all of this is done after the mother's euthanized prior to giving birth. Although, yes, part of what you spoke about collecting blood, we do collect blood samples to check the maternal biochemistry profile and hormonal profile changes. That's tracked across pregnancy. Then we have an exposure window. We don't expose the mothers to the chemical the entire pregnancy. That would start about 30 days after pregnancy. So that's when we can detect the fetus. The chemical exposure continues for 100 days. Then we allow a washout period where we don't give the chemical anymore. So that's just to make sure that anything that has been negatively affected on the mother or the fetus uh, that we're looking at is not kind of directly toxic. So your body, if you have kind of a direct toxic effect, are able to compensate for that. What we were looking for was hard changes. Most of that was assessed afterwards after we did tissue collections on the fetus. But we did, yes, do blood samples to check how the status of maternal hormonal profiles. So, Jeremy, last year, Danny and I actually went to Potter Park Zoo, and we were able to see Dopsy, the rhino who was pregnant at the time, get an ultrasound. And in that interview, they told us that her pregnancy can range between so many different months. What is the gestational period or how long are she pregnant for compared to humans? Sheep are pregnant for about 145 days, give or take two or three days. It's a quite a tight window. It's not as long as humans, so that's probably about, I'd say, a third less time than humans. So the gestation period is a little bit shorter. Not by much, though. But yeah, again, sheep are quite tight in, as far as their gestational window. If you're going past 148 days, then there's something wrong with their pregnancy, and there really isn't that wide of a window like you would see in the rhinoceros. That's great that the pregnancies for these sheep are small on a time scale versus other animals, such as like the rhino that we had an interview earlier last year. Something that I've been thinking about is there's BPA that has been polluted throughout the environment. And I'm wondering, how do you control for the environmental and external introduction of bisphenols into these sheep without you knowing about it? You guys are really like kicking these out with some great questions. I feel like I'm doing my defense again. So it's very difficult to control for external exposures, especially these sheep undergo a time-mated pregnancy. So they're out at the farm for about, let's see, we move them to a surgery facility around gestational day 115. So that's mid to late pregnancy in the sheep. So all that time beforehand, they've been out on the MSU sheep research farm, living their lives out in the, the field and in the barn. So we can't control for how they're exposed through water or hay or even see um the things called their phytochemicals, so chemicals that would be in the plants that can even kind of mimic how some of these bisphenol chemicals act. So we can't control for any of that. But interestingly, we're able to control a little bit for that is drawing for blood. So we do check the chemical levels in the mother prior to running the experiment. So we have blood samples from the mother. We have urine samples, and we're actually able to collect fetal blood too and measure the bisphenol chemicals. And actually, really interestingly, we've done some work. It's called toxicokinetics. We're able to measure how the chemical is transported throughout the body in the mother and the fetus. 
we're able to collect blood from the fetus in real time. And actually, to your point, something we noticed was uh, accumulation of one of these emerging bisphenols within the placenta or in the fetal compartment in fetal blood. And some of our animals had pre-exposure out of the farm that we were able to detect through these samples. I'm not too familiar with toxicokinetics, Jeremy. Can you tell us a little bit more about how does that work? And what is the significance of the accumulation of that emerging bisphenol? So toxicokinetics are the understanding how a chemical functions through the body. So it's absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion. So all of those factors would be termed broadly toxicokinetics or how the chemical acts through those pathways. And we're able to understand the toxicokinetics of these bisphenols by doing toxicokinetic studies. We do this fetal surgery, so we're able to catheterize the fetus. It's actually a pretty cool surgery. We kind of externalize the fetus while it's still alive in the placenta, and we catheterize it, put it all back. It's really interesting to be a part of or watch it. And then through that, then we give the mother a single injection of the chemical. And then over a period of time, so in this case, we did over four days, we periodically draw blood from the mother and the baby and then measure how we're able to develop these toxicokinetic profiles to understand how the chemical moves from the mother into the fetus and how the fetus is able to metabolize and excrete it. It's an important finding that we saw BPS. This is one of the emerging bisphenols accumulating in the placenta and in the fetal compartment. That means it's not really able to leave. So for some reason, it's entering the fetus through the mother. It changes chemical structure a little bit, but that's kind of confusing. But then it's not able to exit the fetus. So we get really prolonged fetal exposure to the chemicals. Whereas some of the other bisphenols, predominantly there's BPA and BPF are the other top two other than BPS. So BPA, BPS, and BPF are the top three bisphenols. BPA and BPF actually don't linger in the fetal compartment like BPS does. So we we worry about that because the fetus is going to be exposed for that chemical for a much longer period of time. In our case, we gave a single injection to the mother and we saw BPS plateauing and staying in the fetus throughout that time period. So we calculate this thing called a half-life. That's how long it takes for half of the chemical to leave the body. And in this case, from that single injection, our half-life It was around uh, 40 something days. So it's quite a long time for that chemical to linger. Like that's uh, very unusual. An important point that you brought up is how it's really hard for the body to process bisphenols and remove them from the body. What makes bisphenols so difficult for the body to metabolize? And why do companies continue to pursue using bisphenols in their plastic? Okay, so the first part of that, I didn't mean to mislead you. It's not that they're difficult to metabolize. So especially in the mother, or you can think of the person, not the unborn individual. So when you're exposed to these chemicals, they pass through your liver. Typically within 24 hours, they're completely out of your system. Um, They're predominantly excreted through the urine, where this accumulation of the bisphenol is unique to the fetal compartment. So what's happening is the bisphenol enters from maternal circulation through the placenta into the fetus. Then the fetus takes this chemical and its, its body processes it and metabolizes it into a larger form of the chemical. Then what ends up happening is that large compound structure that we are easily able to excrete through our urine, the fetus is not able to do that. So it ends up in amniotic fluid. And then this process called deconjugation, reconjugation, recycling happens where the fetus swallows its own amniotic fluid and then takes that large BPA or BPS molecule turns it back into the regular BPA and BPS, and then the whole, it just cycles over and over again like that. So that's why you get less transport across the placenta because the majority of the time it's found as this large molecular structure, but the fetus is constantly turning that structure over and remaking new bisphenol. 
Whereas, again, the mother or the adult individual is able to process that quite quickly. So why do companies still continue to use these? It's nearly impossible to produce plastics without bisphenols. And plastics are, the plastics industry is like a billion dollar industry. There's like 300 million tons of BPA produced every year. So there is some money in that. We do see at the regulatory level, companies being forced to remove BPA specifically from baby bottles or things that infants are coming directly in contact with. Although it's fairly acceptable um, used in any other plastics that you see. But again, these emerging bisphenols, that's what they, you try to jump the regulatory hoop of cutting out the BPA, replace it with BPS, because we don't know enough information about it to say, let's take that off the market. So it's what we're doing in academic research here with the bisphenols is just you try to put out information. This inter- we, you know, we are really developing these negative understandings of some of the emerging bisphenols kind of in the hopes that this will drive further future regulatory decisions to try to remove some of these chemicals and really put forth a better effort into finding a chemical that's not going to be harmful. So again, we know that there are 21 bisphenols, but there's anecdotally, there's over 200 that can be made. So somewhere in there, we can probably find a happy medium for our plastics production, but we're not quite there yet. Thanks, Jeremy, for clarifying that. That makes a lot more sense now how the BPA gets stuck in the amniotic fluid. And thanks for explaining why these companies are still continuously pursuing using bisphenols as a material to build their plastics. Now, moving on, Jeremy, can you tell us a little bit about the results that you were able to obtain from these experiments? Some of the main findings we did from this, we would call it a chronic exposure study, so where the mothers were given daily injections of the chemical, um, more mimicking how humans are exposed to these compounds. What we noticed were, first, the production of, it's called pregnancy-associated glycoprotein. It's a factor that's produced by a cell in the placenta that most people think of. Classically, the placenta is known to have this barrier function. People think of it as a barrier of the fetus to the external environment. Well, the cells that are responsible for that barrier produce PAGs or this placental associated glycoprotein. So it's a marker for the health of the placenta. So I guess that was the first finding we saw was when we got our blood results back and saw that during our exposure window for BPS only, we, we tested BPA and BPS. So the top two bisphenols. BPS only actually lowered the production of these PAG levels in our mothers. So this circulating factor. So then that led us to investigate further the kind of anatomical structure of the placenta, the cells that are involved. And really what ultimately came out of that is we see that BPS kind of, it functions to inhibit cell-to-cell communication in the placenta probably early on, which prevents the formation of these barrier cells, the cells that you need to sustain a healthy pregnancy. And actually it recapitulates some findings in mice. So the mothers that were exposed to BPA, we were able to take fat tissue from the fetus, and then we grow that fat, and we are able to isolate fat cells from there. And those fat cells actually, they differentiate. They turn into mature fat cells quicker, and they also uptake more lipids, so they become fatter. So this really plays into the gestational exposure to BPA being an obesogenic chemical or leading to obesity kind of later in life. So when we're able to really artificially grow these cells out in a dish and see how they would react, would we have potentially left the uh, offspring to grow up naturally? Those are amazing results, Jeremy, especially since you were saying that bisphenols can affect like cell-to-cell communication, which is vital for growth and development. Now you're saying if the mother is exposed to a certain amount of bisphenols, this can affect the maturity of these fat cells. And later on in life, these fetuses can develop things like diabetes and obesity. 
Is there anything a mother can do to prevent these negative outcomes to her fetus because she probably would be exposed to these bisphenols? Yeah, there's absolutely things you can do. There are much more than just bisphenols that you're exposed to, commonly thousands of different chemicals that we know very little about. So what you can do is to, you take little steps on reducing your exposure. For bisphenols, your predominant routes are you want to avoid canned foods. Most canned foods have an epoxy liner that has BPA in it. Obviously, plastic water bottles you try to avoid. I would still go for a BPA-free water bottle. You don't want to use detergent in the water bottle. Wash it out with hot water. If you use the soap, detergents can actually erode the lining. Don't leave it out in the sun. UV light also degrades plastics down to these small molecules. And the other thing is, don't, well, you wouldn't do this during pregnancy, but you don't want to drink alcohol out of plastic because there are a lot of plastic leaches into alcohol, usually 40% or above. So if you'd be hitting the vodka there, but there's quite a bit of plastic in that actually. A lot of people don't realize just how much plastic there is in the world, whether it's from all the pollution that we're seeing between the great garbage pile that exists in the Pacific Ocean to the landfills that we have in our backyard. What is one item that people are constantly touching that is covered in these bisphenols that people don't know about? We, we kind of maybe briefly touched on a little bit, but haven't quite. But thermal receipt paper is actually one major source of bisphenol exposure. So every time you get a receipt at the gas station or the grocery store, when you're touching that receipt, the longer you hold on to it, the more bisphenol it's going to transfer from the receipt paper onto your hand. Yeah, I really worry about, especially pregnant women who are occupationally exposed, like maybe a cashier worker at a grocery store who's constantly touching these receipts day in and day out. Wow, Jeremy, it's even a receipt papers. Why can't it just be paper? I don't understand why do so many things need to have these bisphenols. Are there other things that we can use to replace them? There are some emerging types of plastics that are a little more natural that people are trying to use. But again, we get at this question of we don't know how they break down or how that breakdown product might be processed in the body. That's why a lot of times we stick to chemicals where we know how they're going to respond. So with bisphenols, we have a general idea of how, at least in industry, how they're going to work to form plastics. Again, I know that there is some work being done into some plastic replacement compounds. We've seen like work with algae or even things that you look on the other end of the spectrum where there's people who are engineering bacteria to degrade the bisphenol so you wouldn't have the environmental exposure. I always tell people like stainless steel too. That's another, you can always use stainless steel instead of plastic. You're not going to get exposed through that. So a receipt paper, to be honest, I don't really know. There'd be printing, but then you have issues with ink exposure. And then the cost would be more than just printing it on these kind of thermal machines that everyone has already. Yeah, so I don't know how we could get around using these with the current technology that we have. It faces problems of restructuring how businesses operate. That's really the issue with getting rid of plastics in general is our lives revolve around them in so many ways that we don't even know. It's in everything. It's needed for everything. There's a lot of great thinkers trying to come up with solutions for how we can remove some of the more harmful chemicals that are used in plastics production and replace those with something that's a little safer. This problem that you were referring to about how these plastics are breaking down reminds me a lot of the nuclear waste issue that we're dealing with in this country as well as around the world. We produce all of this material, but then we don't understand what the end result of that material is going to be, whether it's lasting for tens of thousands of years to staying in our systems whenever we're interacting with it. You had mentioned that you just defended your dissertation. Congratulations. 
Now that you're about to graduate, what do you plan on doing once the pandemic is over? Or do you have a job lined up during the pandemic? Well, thank you. Yes, I do have a job lined up. So I'll actually be kind of moving amidst the pandemic here. I'll be joining the ranks of the FDA, working as a toxicologist at the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. So I, I think a lot of my work here can positively influence some regulatory decisions that are made in the future. That sounds incredible. Good luck with that. And thank you for joining us this morning again to talk to us about your impactful research. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Dan Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. The Sci-Files can be found online on SciFiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on SciFiles, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at SciFiles at impact9fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.